Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Global markets are still adjusting to the September FOMC meeting and subsequent rate hike. It remains clear that the Fed is committed to its plan to lower inflation, and investors are looking to obtain fair value in a financial climate laden with opportunities. Urian Timmer, Director of Global Macro, is back for his weekly look at the markets to help unpack what investors could see in the short term and look at what current valuations say about where those opportunities will arise moving forward. Urian shares today that if the Fed goes where it is saying it's going and inflation expectations are correct, considering the effects of quantitative easing, we are heading for significantly restrictive monetary policy. Urian also looks at the Fed's cycle, the 60-40 portfolio, Europe's energy crisis, and more. Also, per usual, Urian shares some charts, so please head to at Timmer Fidelity on Twitter to follow along. Today's podcast was recorded on September 26th, 2022. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently, and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. We are grateful to have you as always, but kind of especially today. Where are you? Looks lovely. I, I'm in Madrid, Spain. I just arrived uh, early this morning. Uh, so um, um, good to see you. It's been hard to know where to hide. Tell us a little bit about whether the 6040 is, um, well, it's just tell us what we do with it ultimately. The first slide we'll look at today is S&P 500 versus Barclays Ag, tweeted by Urian on September 26th. This, of course, has been a, a, an awful year and we haven't seen a year like this in many, many years because there has been no place to hide, as you said, right? So stocks are down about 25% from the highs. Bonds are down about 15% from the highs. This chart shows the drawdown in the Barclays Ag and the S&P 500. Uh, You can see in the bottom panel that bonds are now positively correlated with stocks. And that, you know, is not what the 60-40 paradigm is built on. The whole point is that you you know you, you insure against your risk on the 60 side by owning bonds on the 40 side and in normal times when real rates are positive then you get a nice yield on top of that you get the insurance or the, the diversification and of course in the last year i mean now it's different because yields are now higher but when neg- when real yields were negative and the correlation stopped working um the whole premise of the 40 you know fell apart um i think that's now changing um it, the 40 is still positively correlated to the 60 but at least with real rates now at about one and a half percent positive um there is at least an opportunity on the 40 side, especially now that the Fed is pushing the envelope so far uh, that we're going to be setting up for, you know, probably a pretty juicy pivot at some point. Uh, the, the issue is that, you know, we're catching a falling knife until we get there. But may, maybe we pull up slide five just to show since the FOMC meeting a week ago um, how, how the goalposts have moved yet again. 
And for us, that slide is the Fed and the market, also tweeted on September 26th. Um, so, you know, as as we all know, the Fed met, uh, or it was a Wednesday, I guess it was. Yeah. Um, the dots are now radically different from the last set of dots. So just to remind the audience, you know, the Fed meets almost every month, but it's the quarterly meetings that are the important ones because that's where it, update, it updates its summary of economic projections. That's when the dot plot gets updated. And so you see that here. And the Fed is now saying we're going to go to about 4.7% in early by early 2023. Um, and we're not really going to come down that much until 2024. You know, the market had priced in a lower terminal rate and then a faster kind of pivot back towards what's what I think the market is assuming is a neutral policy. So you can still see that pivot in the orange line, but it's it's higher and it takes longer than it was before. And, you know, you, you plug that into a, a DCF model and, you know, you don't get a good answer. Uh, regardless of whether you're looking at stocks or bonds and that's that's been the reset over the past week so yeah let's so let's go there on, on the valuation side of things ultimately where i mean it, we've been talking about levels that were june lows um the market you know all around those areas so so what is the significance if if we sort of stay there if we go through it i mean we're we're all what are we talking about in terms of valuation Next up, the two equity valuation slides tweeted on September 27th. We've talked about this for a number of weeks. So I, at least, you know, as dire as the news has been, I think at least we've been on the right side of this saying that, you know, the valuation, you know, this so far has been a valuation correction, right? Earnings have held up. And of course, whether they will continue to hold up is a very big open question. But so far, they've held up. Uh, and Q3 earnings season is coming up in a few weeks. And the estimate of about 3% growth, 4% growth of that quarter uh, has been pretty stable. Uh, so the earnings side so far has been okay, but the valuation side has not. And in this chart, you know, you see the forward PE in the gray line. You see the, um, the two-year yield inverted and expressed as a PE in the orange line. And you see the 10-year real yield uh, uh, using the tips break-evens. Um, the purple line, again, uh, on a reverse scale expressed as a PE. And that has been the big story this year, right? So every time the market goes down to catch up to the to the moving target of where the Fed is going to go, um, you know, the, the Fed changes the goal or the Fed moves the goalpost. And then all of a sudden, the two-year yield is no longer at three and a quarter. It's at four. And the 10-year real yield is no longer at 0.5, but now at one. And those are pretty powerful drivers for valuation. And as you can see from the chart, even though the PE has come down a lot and it closed Friday at 15.7 uh, times forward earnings, if you look at the combination of the 10-year real and the two-year nominal, it looks like we should be at 14 times, not at 15.7. You know, that gets you to about 33, 3400 on the S&P. And it's it's not a good story, but that has been the driver and the weekly chart of this, these same indicators um, mm -hmm. where I've done a regression going back to 2017, so about five years worth of data. And you can see in the bottom the fair value for the S&P based on those two indicators uh, versus where the S&P actually is. So we closed the week at 30, you know, 700 or so. 
Fair value is around 33,3400, and that's of course assuming that the earnings numbers hold in, uh, yeah. because that's based on expected earnings of about $235 per share. Uh, current earnings, trailing earnings, is about $220 per share. Um, so the market's still expecting about a nine, ten percent earnings growth rate. Uh, if we end up getting flat earnings because the economy is weakening. Uh, then you, you're, you know, you're applying $220 times 14.3. That gets you to 3,100 for the S&P. So it's, it's a, it's a still a moving target and it's not moving in the right direction. Well, let's discuss a little bit about targeting and uh, you've done some there, but it's, it's been a big discussion, hasn't it? I mean, everything from the Fed's targeting to ultimately how you pin, pin anything else, any other forecast. Um, if you can just discuss that a little bit, it's it's been tough, but perhaps things yeah. are being cleared out. Well, I, I, I do think we're getting closer to a, a real actionable uh, opportunity. Now, U.S. monetary policy tweeted on September 26th. One thing that's happening is that inflation expectations are collapsing. Uh, the one year forward tips uh, break even is now less than 2%. And that doesn't mean that the forward right. tips break even is correct. I mean, the market is not always correct. It's often not correct. And also we don't, we don't know what the kind of the, the chicken and egg nonlinearity is of that 2% target, whether, uh, and by that, I mean, whether that 2% break even over the next year, five years, even 10 years hinges on the Fed actually breaking something or whether that's just the market expecting base effects to roll off and et cetera. So it's a little bit hard to know how much stock to put uh, in that break even, but the right. combination of falling inflation expectations and rising nominal yields and, and now with the Fed jawboning the markets to even a higher terminal rate, you can see in this chart here, which shows the real Fed funds rate, so um, and against what we call the natural rate or the natural rate of interest or R star, uh, you can see now that that purple line goes well into restrictive territory if the Fed goes where it says it's going to go and if inflation expectations are correct. Um, and then that's not even adding um, the effects from quantitative tightening, which I think generally is assumed to be worth another 100 basis points of tightening. So you add that, you get to about three and a half real uh, on, on the terminal point of the Fed funds curve. And you compare that to R star, which I estimate to be about 1% real. Uh, you get to a significantly restrictive monetary policy. And if you look at the past, you know, those peaks we're about in the same place, about two, 300 basis points above our star. Um, and, you know, either the Fed does that and it breaks something and you get a recession, which happened every other time the Fed went that far above neutral. Um, and at that point, you know, presumably the stock market is lower than where it is today because then the earnings picture would be at risk. But certainly the bond market would be, I, I think, a screaming bond. Your treasury yield is 3.77 today, and we can talk about you know that's rising so relentlessly. But I think at least there will be an actionable uh, uh, inflection point on the 40 side. So I yeah. think bonds will be a, a good buy. You know, real rates will be probably plus two by then, and then maybe at the 60 side, depending on how much is discounted. 
Uh, the 60 side will have opportunities, especially, I think, at that point in the non-dollar world, so non-U.S. Uh, uh, equities, because by then, the dollar will probably be peaking, and then will, okay. that will create a whole opportunity set for global allocation. Do, do you think that, that, in a way, that's what we're seeing right now? I mean, certainly the U.K. is... is um having a pretty rough unwind of its currency compared to the dollar. Um, yeah, it looks like monetary side of things is going to step in. But um, how ultimately, it, so could this be the dollar peaking, I guess, is sort of the question. Next, let's take a look at buyers and sellers of USTs, tweeted on September 29th. So the dollar, of course, is on a tear, and it reminds me not only of the financial crisis, not not to bring parallels to the financial crisis, because it's a different world from that, but it also reminds me of early 2016, right? The, the Chinese yuan was under a lot of pressure. It's under a lot of pressure today. Um, and we had, you know, the so-called Shanghai Accord back then. And of course, right now, there's lots of talk about a second plaza accord, which happened in the the original one happened in the mid 80s when the dollar was too strong. And so what we're seeing right now is the pound is getting punished for fiscal, um, uh, a lack of fiscal discipline. Maybe we can call it that. Uh, Of course, the the Bank of Japan is intervening in the yen market. Uh, The Chinese central bank is trying to defend the yuan. Uh, all of those things have one thing in common, and that is that it's happening because the dollar is so strong. And in order to intervene in those markets, those countries have to sell their dollar reserves. And and I think that is a good uh, explanation of why the rise in yields is so relentless, even though bond yields offer a lot of value now, right? At 3.8%, that, that's a real yield of about one and a half, one percent or so. Uh, but in this chart, you see the, the yearly flow of buying or selling from the Fed, which are the blue bars, from uh, investors, which are the pink bars, and then from uh, treasuries held by Japan and by China. And you can see that two years ago, there were massive, massive inflows and not coincidentally, that was also the low in yields. All of those flows have now ended and have in some cases uh, turned into outflows. And I think um, that's all part of this strong dollar mix. So uh, the dollar is strong because of the policy divergence between the U.S. Fed, which is tightening very, very aggressively, and the rest of the world, which is either not tightening or easing or tightening a lot less aggressively. And I think the end point for this Fed cycle will bring with it uh, the, the peak in the dollar. And once that happens, all those pressures about selling treasuries to defend other currencies will dissipate. Um, and I think at that point, there will be a really juicy opportunity for all kinds of trades that haven't worked in a long time to start working again. But the question is, between now and three or six months from now, that terminal point in, in the Fed cycle, uh, it's a catching a falling knife. Um, and it's a question of when that cycle will will turn. And one thing we talked about last week was that the Fed, you know, every time the Fed starts to hint that maybe we're getting close to the end of the cycle, markets rally, which means financial conditions ease, which undermines the very effect the Fed is trying to achieve. So the Fed almost by definition has to be super hawkish right up to the moment that it pivots. Um, and that 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 makes it very difficult to see the turn, unless the market, you know, over discounts 
the end of the cycle. You know, we showed the, the two-year yield and the 10-year real yield and the P-E ratio before. So far, the P-E is just catching up to this falling uh, fair value. If the market were to over, you know, to overshoot that fair value, then at least we could look at a really good point, uh, a, a point of capitulation where we can say, okay, even if we're wrong, we're getting paid for it because the market is cheaper than it should be. But we, we haven't gotten to that point yet. And just on back to the dollar and what else might work if if we see this peak, and it's hard, you know, as you've pointed out, to know to when all of that happens. But other things might become of interest. So, I mean, that's EM. That's, um, is it EM? I'm asking actually as a question. And also a note on commodities if the dollar peaks. Yes, I'm trying to see if I have the chart here, but I, I don't think I have it. But um, yes, yeah, so when we look at the earnings revisions in EM versus the U.S. and even IFA versus the U.S., right. um, the, the, the spread has never been wider, right? So it, so we're getting to that point where it's so bad that it's good, but we need a catalyst for that, right? So um, I think the earnings estimates in China, for instance, are down like 25% or something like that. So, um, it, but you need that catalyst, which which will be a falling dollar, uh, the Fed ending this cycle. And again, it's this sort of binary thing where is the Fed going to go so far that it breaks something or will the Fed pivot before that point, which of course would be super bullish because then you get, if you think about it in, a, in, a, in DCF terms, right, in the discounted cash flow model terms, then you get relief on the interest rate side of the DCF and you you prevent or you 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 don't get to the point where the earning side starts to break. Uh, so that of course would be the ultimate bullish signal. Uh, but but I, either way, when the when the cycle turns, uh, the dollar will likely start to weaken, and then these earnings numbers can start to improve. And and again, I don't I don't think I have the slide um, this week. But when you look at the China credit impulse, which is the amount of new credit as a percentage of GDP, that follows a pretty uh, reliable two-year cycle. And that, that cycle has bottomed. Uh, it, it bottomed actually a couple of quarters ago and is now starting to improve as, as the Chinese central bank and Chinese policymaker are intervening more and more to, to prop up the economy. The relative earnings growth of EM versus the U.S., uh, tends to lag that indicator by about two quarters. And so we're right at that point where earnings growth in the rest of the world, with, of course, EM being the highest beta expression of that, uh, will start to improve. And part of that will be the U.S. earnings picture continuing to deteriorate. But part of it is that the rest of the world has gotten so bad so long ago that they're ready for the turn. So I, I do think we're setting up kind of a perfect storm where all of those things come together. Uh, and maybe, maybe we start sort of legging into that trade, you know, gradually because we, it's going to be very hard to see the actual turn coming, I think. That's so interesting. It's be very, okay. Uh, there's a question rolling in here. I, I think you have a slide on this too, is why haven't we seen perhaps more of the gold price reaction. There's a lot of geopolitical uncertainty. Uh, anyway, that's that's the question. Gold and real rates is the slide to reference here, which was tweeted on September 27th. So yes, it's a great question because when we look at the, the TIPS model, which of course has been 
the model that has ruled gold's valuation for a number of years. So you look at the 10-year real yield from the tips market and you do a regression, you turn it upside down, do a regression, that's explained gold better than anything. And that purple line is the, the fair value based on the tips market. And of course, the blue bars at the bottom shows you the actual real yield again on a reverse scale. And, you know, the round trip for the 10-year real yield from minus 1.18 to plus 1.31 in literally six, seven, eight, nine months is, is just a stunning reversal. And um, and you do see gold responding, like you see the, the black bars there. We are kind of falling out of that long range of 1650 to 2100 or so. But it's nowhere close to where that purple line is, which actually suggests yeah. that gold should be at 1100, which is kind of hard to, hard to even imagine. And I think there, um, there are a couple of things going on. One is that maybe the tips market, as we were saying before, maybe the tips market is not correct. Uh, maybe inflation ends up being stickier than the tips market is expecting. Because if you apply that, that purple line to the actual trailing CPI, uh, it suggests that gold should be at about 2,000, 2,100. So you can come up with a different output uh, depending on whether you're using trailing inflation as opposed to forward inflation. Um, I think probably the more likely explanation is that, and, and we, we're seeing this in Japan, and we're probably going to see this maybe in, in the UK as well, is that if there are no buyers left for treasuries and yields go to four or even 5%, uh, U.S. government's not going to be able to function very well because the debt levels are so high. And that means that the Fed, or it means it suggests that the Fed is going to have to come back in and support the bond market. So they, they could be raising rates, but but abandoning quantitative tightening. And so maybe the gold market is... Question. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, so the gold market maybe is sniffing in a future of financial repression, not unlike what Japan has been doing for years. And I think that's a highly plausible scenario. And of course, the 1940s analog that we've used for so so much for the last two and a half years is exactly that outcome, right? That the Fed right. continues to to kind of cap the bond market, control the bond market, because no one can afford high yields when you have this much debt. And so the gold market would would sniff that out because in that scenario, uh, the Fed would be pushing real yields back down towards zero or negative, and that of course is 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 uh, very bullish for gold. So I think gold is kind of caught between the current reality, which is that real yields are rising, against the future possibility that that the Fed will have no choice but to come back in and and kind of repress the bond market. Fascinating. Okay, this this fits with the overall story here. So here's the question: If Treasuries are seen as a safe haven, would large foreign inflows dampen um, Treasury yields? I mean, it's it's a very interesting question in the midst of foreigners having having yeah. different currency to buy Treasuries. But I, I don't know how you see that. Yeah. No. Uh, yes. And we and that's what we were describing earlier in slide 44. So you have. You have economic buyers, uh, so normal investors, you know, whether it's individuals or pension funds or investment advisors. Uh, and I think the economic buyers who look at real yields and monetary policy, they, they will come back in um, at some point, maybe soon. Right? If you're a German insurance company or a Japanese uh, pension fund, 
with the dollar strong and the yield differential pretty wide, um, if you hedge your, if you buy treasuries and hedge them, uh, you're, you're coming out pretty well on that basis. But it's the non-economic buyers that mm-hmm. are by far the largest. I mean, just look at those blue bars. Look at how big the Fed has been. Um, those buyers have gone on a strike, basically, or even turned into sellers, right? The, the PBOC, uh, and actually I have this chart here somewhere, uh, China's U.S. dollar reserves, which, of course, are invested in treasuries. And that was tweeted on September 29th. Uh, that that peaked in you know about almost ten years ago, and they're selling treasuries because they right. need to defend the currency. So so it's the economic versus non-economic buyers. I think the economic buyers will come in uh, once there is some sense that the Fed is reaching the end of the cycle, uh, and I think that's that's I think that's fairly uh, easy prediction to make. I mean I you know I look at this for my own retirement uh you know account and i'm like yeah 3.8 i'll I'll do that all day long um, but it's the non-economic buyers that i think are driving the bus right now and and that they will need a, a peaking dollar um you know the dollar to peak before that eases the pressure off of them selling i see okay fascinating it's so interesting okay here yeah this is an interesting question it's a question of whether what we're seeing right now is the so-called it's not very attractive dead cow bounce or, or what you call it. But do you still see this as in a secular bull market? Oh, that, that's such a hard question right now. I, I'm um, my my strategy, uh, uh, which has worked over, since 09 when I became a or sorry, in 2013, when I uh, started pounding the table on the secular bullish thesis, my my approach has been uh, I'm going to assume that it is unless proven otherwise. And so far, that has been the correct strategy, because even with very violent, scary declines like what we saw during the pandemic, right, 35 percent in five weeks is like a crash. Um, You know, the secular bull market does not prevent declines or or recessions or even crashes. You know, the 87 crash was in the secular bull market at that time. Uh, What defines it, though, is how quickly we recover. And so uh, that's a long way of saying that. The jury is out on whether the secular bull market is still alive because we're still trying to get to the bottom and it will be the recovery off that bottom that will define it. So if this turns out like the 1940s. So let's take a look at 1945 to 1949 analog, which was tweeted on September 15th. If this turns out like the 1940s and we end up bouncing around for a year or two, um, that could still mean we're in a secular bull market, but it's going to be that will really stretch the, 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 the thesis at this point, because a secular bull market requires a pretty robust uh, recovery. And like we see here in the late 1940s, which has a lot of parallels to today, uh, that was not the case. And also, uh, this is a valuation correction. And almost by definition, a secular bull market means that valuations are, are rising or at least holding up. And so um, so the jury is out, uh, but I'm going to assume that it's intact uh, unless proven otherwise. So that's that's not a very good answer, but that's the only answer I have. Well, it's I mean, it's it's a it's a good answer, considering there's some there's a, a lot of non answers out there just watching the markets right now. So helpful. I think we have time for this just briefly. It might be a little bit of a yes or no. Um, are you concerned about energy? Contagion, the sort of energy story out of Europe um, this year going forward. 
Uh, I mean, we all know the story about, you know, Russia and, you know, and it's, it's unfortunate, but, you know, uh, it's amazing that we started talking about this in January and now it's, you know, you know late September and, uh, and uh, Putin seems to be still doubling down. And of course, winter is coming um, in Europe and everywhere else. Um, but at the same time, the economy is clearly slowing and, and, you know, the price of oil is well off the highs. But hopefully it doesn't get too bad, um, uh, because if you think about it in an extreme, the European government or, or European governments could start to ration the availability of energy uh, if, if it really becomes a problem. And, and we see this like in a different way in California, where I spend a fair amount of time, where the government will uh, do rolling blackouts when it gets really hot and people are using their ACs. It, it could be a rolling blackout type of thing in Europe, but if it affects businesses and industry, then that obviously is very bad for the economy. And uh, Europe, by some accounts, is already in a recession, although I'm in Madrid and it's pretty busy out there. My flight was full. Uh, but still, um, you know, that that would be the contagion of energy prices, um, obviously not only reducing purchasing power among individuals in Europe, but actually reducing the output of of of, of GDP. Right. If 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 you get these these uh, restrictions. So um, I think it is a Europe issue and not a U.S. or a North America issue, because North America is fairly energy independent, uh, but uh, but still, Europe is an important part of the global the global pie. So. For sure, so interesting to get your thoughts here, Ian Timmer. We've literally been waiting to speak to you since since Fed Day last week. So thank you very much for putting this some of this yeah, infrastructure for of us. Of course, and yeah, and I'll, and I'll be speaking to you from Dublin next Monday. And actually, just on a quick side note, I don't know if I showed this chart back in the spring. But I left Dublin in May because my, my son lives there, um, and I took this picture of the uh, of uh, from of the landscape as my flight was departing, you know, flying yeah, out of Dublin it. Airport, and I had that rainbow. Okay, so um, the flight attendant on the plane said, you know, I showed it to them, and they said, well, you got to send this to the Irish uh, Tourism Bureau because they they would love that, and I did send it to them saying, hey, would you like this photo? And I literally today, finally, after like five months, got an email back saying we would love to license this photo. So we might start seeing that in the official Irish uh, tourism, uh, you know, social media. So <laughs> Everyone saw it here first, just so you know. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Keep taking photos. Thank you, Yuri. We look forward to seeing you from the end of the rainbow next week. Exactly. All right. I'll see you then. Yuri and Tim are joining us from Madrid today. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. You can visit fidelity.ca for more information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter. Thank you. See you next time.